Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. Hello, everyone. I'm Beverly Kirk, director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at CSIS, filling in for Dr. Kathleen Hicks. On this episode of Defense 2020, I speak with three experts on national security challenges for the incoming administration of President-elect Joe Biden. Dr. Seth Jones, Director of the Transnational Threats Project and Harold Brown Chair at CSIS. Todd Harrison, Director of Defense Budget Analysis and the Aerospace Security Project, also at CSIS. And Dr. Corey Shockey, Director of Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. Well, we're just about a month out before President-elect Joe Biden takes office in January 2021, and the lame duck session has been anything but quiet. Seth, Corey, Todd, let's talk about first the Trump administration's actions during the lame duck session. Defense Secretary Mark Esper was ousted and several other Pentagon officials were fired shortly after the election or asked to resign. Talk about how common it is or uncommon it is for this kind of turnover at the end of an administration. Corey, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, It's extremely uncommon and really very odd to fire the leadership of your defense team two months before the end of your term. And so it's led to a lot of speculation. You know, this is... I feel like this has been the character of the Trump administration for the last four years. They do something and we say, what did they mean by that? Because it's not obvious. And it reminds me of two things. First, comedian John Mulaney's horse in the hospital skit description of the Trump administration. Like, it's so unusual to see a horse in a hospital. What does this mean and what's he going to do? But the second is Nasser, the leader of Egypt, said in the mid-1950s that the difficulty about dealing with the United States is they make moves that aren't obviously advantageous. And so you're trying to figure out what they're doing because it doesn't appear to advance their own interests. That's a good summation. Seth, thoughts? Well, I mean, it's it certainly has been the norm for the Trump administration that there has been significant change of positions or the absence of them for the four years that they were in office. I mean, I think it's in in the Department of Defense. I can't remember any administration that has had this many actings and individuals serving in the capacity of in particular, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So with the firing of Mark Esper, it really went along with what has been an administration and a Pentagon that has been in turmoil, particularly within the civilian apparatus. You know, the, the problem is, it is it's been hard to have consistency 
because there's been so much changeover. It's not unusual to see some turnover at the end of an administration. There isn't any administration because people are leaving to get new jobs, particularly if it's in the final term. But this one has been pretty consistent across the four years where whether it's at the undersecretary of defense for policy at the assistant secretary positions or the deputy assistant secretary positions, or even at the secretary positions, there's been such change. And I think it does make it hard to go to Corey's point on the uh, Nasser comment. It's even more difficult in the sense because it makes it hard to understand who's in what position and what their primary policies are. And I think that's, that's kind of where we sit right now going into the next administration. And Todd, let me turn to you because it's not just Esper and the top officials. The administration has moved to put its own people on the defense advisory board, specifically the defense policy board and the defense business board. And is there anything that when the new administration comes in that they can do about all this influx of people who were, were added to those boards? Yeah. So, you know, first off, you know, I agree with Corey and Seth. This was very disruptive, unexpected, but also typical for what we've seen in this administration. And, you know, in particular, this comes at a, a an interesting time because there, you know, in this lame duck session, there are two important defense bills pending in Congress. And so there's, you know, trying to shepherd the National Defense Authorization Act through as well as defense appropriations that are now part of a larger omnibus appropriations bill. So they kind of needed their A-team in there to help, you know, guide and push and, and make sure Congress gets these bills done and has has done them in a way that's acceptable to DOD. And, you know, they you know, went in and wiped out the leadership team uh, just before that final push, uh, legislative push. In terms of, you know, the, the replacements that we've seen on the advisory boards, I, you know, again, it's one of those things that you scratch your head and you wonder, why did they do it? Because first of all, these boards don't have any kind of real authority. They're advisory boards. And so they're, they're, they're just there to provide, you know, outside independent advice uh, to the Secretary of Defense. If they don't want to use them, they don't have to. If they want to replace the people that are on them, they can. So, you know, kicking out all of these, you know, long-serving, well-experienced, well-respected people who have been serving on these boards at the last minute, like, what does that serve? Uh, and replacing them with Trump loyalists, well, they're not going to be allowed to stay. Uh, so, you know, I fully expect the Biden team, once they get in there, they're going to just restock these groups with more credible, experienced people. Uh, so there's really no lasting effect to this. And it's just not clear why they they bothered to expend energy in the last few weeks of the administration doing something like that. And how does this turnover impact? You mentioned specifically the budget and the NDAA. How does this impact the, the management and the policymaking and pushing these things through? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're well, there's not a lot right now. And so there, there's not going to be a lot of leadership on these issues. It's really it's up to Congress at this point. And, you know, what it looks like is Congress is pushing ahead with the NDAA. It's got some provisions in there. The Trump administration has threatened to veto over. It also is lacking some provisions that are unrelated to defense. 
the Trump administration wanted. But Congress, it looks like they're pushing those things through. They may do it with a veto proof margin. Of course, the president can sit on the bill, you know, for a number of days uh, and then veto it at the last minute. And Congress, you know, might have already gone home for the holidays. So it could create some complications there to override his veto. But ultimately, with the NDAA, uh, there's no hard deadline to pass the bill. It's a little dirty little secret in town. And if they wait until January and they resubmit the bill in a new Congress, they can pass it then everything will be fine. When it comes to appropriations, there really is a hard deadline. So that's right now it's December 11th, but it looks like they're going to do a extension to the continuing resolution for another week. But then after that, they really do have to get something passed, either another longer term continuing resolution, or they have to get the omnibus bill passed. And so, you know, really the ball is in the court of Congress at this point. And the Trump administration appears to be less and less able to influence the outcome of these events. Let me ask about another change that came late. Uh, The acting defense secretary, Chris Miller, announced that the civilian head of special operations would report directly to the secretary of defense, basically putting it on the same level with the service secretaries. Um, Does this increase civilian oversight of special operations? Is this a good shift or is this something that you anticipate the new Biden administration would come in and reverse? Bev, it's a good question. I, I, in fact, I talked to Chris Miller about this at CSIS uh, while he was the head of the National Counterterrorism Center. And it's something that the special operations community has been pushing at least since the 2017 NDAA. This was part of Section 922. There has been a strong push from within the special operations community that at least within the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, they've generally been sidelined because they're at the Assistant Secretary level. They're often not in meetings. They had a hard time even getting the irregular warfare annex through the Undersecretary of Defense for policy. A a number of the major wars, including in Syria, in Iraq, Afghanistan, have involved pretty significant numbers of special operations forces. So there's been a strong push I actually think there's some logic behind elevating the role of of a civilian in the Pentagon that has some responsibility for what what I consider to be a likely very important part of competition, and that is the irregular aspects. If we look at the Russians, including GRU and, and Wagner Group's private military company activity, the Iranians certainly with their Quds Force, and even some Chinese activity, There's a lot more than just uh, preparation for conventional and nuclear competition. There's also significant amounts, including on the cyber end, of irregular activity. And this this is this is a role that is played in part by special operations forces. I think the problem, though, is is doing it at the last minute creates. First of all, it creates a bureaucratic issue because we had this sort of odd situation where now the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations reports directly up to the secretary, but also has to keep in, in regular contact with the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. So it's, it's not a real clean bureaucratic situation, and it's, it creates tension. Second of all, it's not clear at all that this is going to stay in a Biden administration. And I think if the special operations community has its 
its wishes, it will elevate that job up to an undersecretary position, which is obviously going to be it's going to be a decision that the next administration and the next secretary of defense are going to have to make. Miller also announced that the U.S. presence in Afghanistan would be reduced by mid-January from 4,500 troops to 2,500 troops. What does that mean for U.S. interests in Afghanistan? Seth, I'll stay with you and then Corey ask you to weigh in. Obviously, this is a subject that's that there's a significant amount of disagreement on. I testified before the House Armed Services Committee just a few weeks ago on this subject and even in conversations I've had with Republican Democratic Senate leadership, even the, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has pushed back pretty hard. The, the concern I have is that, at least in my view, the U.S. position in Afghanistan should in part be a function of both the political efforts that the U.S. is pursuing as the peace negotiations and then the military efforts on the ground against the Taliban and then a number of militant groups, including al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. This was a unilateral decision made by the U.S. with no progress on the peace process. And my concern is that just essentially hands a, at least a tactical victory to the Taliban. They haven't had to do anything. Now they get half the number of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to this idea of, of at least winding the U.S. role down in the war to some degree. The U.S. has been fighting in Afghanistan for 20 years. The war in Afghanistan has been going since at least the, the mid to late 1970s. But I don't think this is how it's, it's done. And I, and I do think the U.S. has to be concerned about what a precipitous withdrawal would do in Afghanistan, particularly with a major United Nations Security Council report uh, concluding earlier this year with intelligence supplied by member states that the Taliban continues to have strategic, operational, and tactical level relations with al-Qaeda's local affiliate, al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. So I do think the U.S. has got to be very careful in how it downsizes its forces. And again, this is more, people love to talk about the number of forces. I mean, obviously there's a lot more to any situation, even a military situation than just the sheer number of forces. I, I just think this was, this was not done in a systematic manner and not done in conjunction with other political efforts that the U.S. was doing. And that's a, that's a criticism that I shared with Chris both before and, and after he made that announcement. And Corey, jump in here. Um, how does this impact the incoming administration's own policy toward Afghanistan? Plus, these aren't the only troops that are being withdrawn uh, kind of at the end of the current administration. There's also a withdrawal of troops from Somalia and from Iraq. The Trump administration is giving a huge gift to the Biden administration because Biden has argued, even when he was vice president, in the Obama administration for doing exactly the kind of reckless, time-limited withdrawals that have nothing to do with conditions on the ground. Biden favored those policies, advocated for them as vice president, and President Trump is giving him a huge gift by taking responsibility for what are going to be tragic consequences of bad policy. So the Biden people ought to be super grateful even if that's not what President Trump intended, its consequence will be a huge gift for the Biden administration. And Todd, thoughts on this? 
Yeah, well, you know, from a budget perspective, I would offer a little caution to people that may be thinking, oh, great, now we can cut, you know, OCO funding. The reality is that the vast majority of OCO funding is not actually war related. Even if you go to the part of the OCO budget that is designated for operations in Afghanistan, the vast majority of that is not actually for Afghanistan. If you read the details, it is what they call enduring operations, base budget support, activities that are in other areas in that region that are ongoing. So, you know, the drawdown in troops in Afghanistan, it will have a slight budgetary impact. We'll see, you know, a slight reduction uh, in you know the cost of Afghanistan, but it's not going to make a huge dent, and it's not certainly not going to get rid of OCO. Does any of this tie the new administration's hands or keep them from taking any kinds of actions they may want to take in any of these areas, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, at all? Well, I mean, Bev, it's in a sense, if the Biden administration wants to increase its force levels in whether it's Somalia or Iraq and Syria or Afghanistan, it's certainly going to be accused of, I think, what the Obama administration did in the 2009 period, which is why are we then switching directions instead of reducing our force posture? uh, Why are we going back up again? So uh, I, I think Corey's right that this was a gift to the Biden administration to go down in the number of forces to go back up. I think there would have to be a pretty compelling reason why this was the case. I mean, I'll just one asterisk, ha- having having been involved when I was in the Department of Defense on counting numbers, the numbers of forces in a theater, including in Afghanistan, are a little bit fungible. So you can play around with the numbers a little bit depending on 90-day rotations or whether you're talking about aircraft coming in for for various periods of time and conducting operations. So you you can play around with the numbers a little bit, but not in the like in in the thousands. So I think to go back up there would have to be a pretty clear and convincing explanation. And so I think in that sense it does it sort of ties Biden down, but I think that's as Corey noted That's been the inclination since uh, he was vice president anyway. Got it. Well, let's talk some more about the incoming Biden administration and some of its challenges that it'll have to face right off the bat. We know now that the president-elect has selected retired General Lloyd Austin, the former head of CENTCOM, to be his secretary of defense. And that's raising lots of questions about civil military relations because retired General Austin, like General Mattis will need a waiver from Congress in order to serve as defense secretary because he's only been retired for four years. Does he actually get this waiver? I will give seven in 10 odds that he gets the waiver, but he should not because President-elect Biden campaigned on a commitment to restore the norms of democracy in our country. And one of the most important norms is the subordination of our uniformed military to civilian leadership. And it matters for a whole bunch of reasons. The, an important one I just heard today from Congressman Mac Thornberry, former chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, was that it's important to have a civilian so that our military doesn't become ever more insular 
That is, when we commit young men and women in harm's way, they need to have the confidence that the American public supports them. And having a civilian secretary matters for that. It matters to our people in uniform, in addition to the reasons it matters for subordination of the military to civilian control, and the reasons that I think really matter a lot also, which are there is a broad skill set for being a cabinet secretary, and that skill set is broader than 41 years in the military and three years serving on defense industry boards. That is, diversity of experience really matters. And I think the best secretaries of defense we have had, and I include secretaries of war, that is, people who had the job before 1947, have all been civilians because they understand how to connect the military enterprise to the broader enterprise of government and to the American people. So I think very highly of Lloyd Austin. That's not the point. And I also only with real reservation supported the waiver in Jim Mattis's case in 2016. I supported it because I thought President Trump was uniquely unprepared and dangerous. And having somebody with Jim Mattis's experience and stature in the defense secretary's job would be an important break on some of the less advised things the president had already been talking about. But I think the circumstances don't merit a waiver in this case, thankfully, because that means President Biden's not a threat to the republic. And I also think it shows how much the norm is, how fast the norm is corroding that for the second time in four years, you have a president looking to put a recently retired military officer into that position. That is, the politicians are hiding behind the legitimacy of the military. And that actually shows why we shouldn't grant the waiver. This is bad for the country. Colin Powell today endorsed Lloyd Austin for the job, but there have been some pretty prominent folks on Capitol Hill say that they don't want to go down this road again for a number of the reasons that you've just outlined, Corey. Seth, what are the odds do you think that he either gets the waiver and even if he does get it, does his nomination even stand a chance? Well, hard for me at this point to put a percentage on it, but I do think you can already see this week it's created a significant discussion for the reason that Corey just laid out. I mean, I do think that that if one is going to waive and include a military officer that has not been out of service for seven years that it has to be for a pretty significant reason. I mean, there was an argument in the post-World War II period, U.S. was still fighting in Korea to grant the waiver for Marshall, I mean, who had been a steady hand at state before that. And then obviously in World War II, this was the very early Cold War period. There was an argument there, and it was it was probably less about Truman itself, the way it might have been with Trump in 2016, and it was more about the period that the U.S. was in at that point after World War II, but with a major war still in Asia. 
and then this early phase of the Cold War, there certainly was an argument for Mattis, but this waiver should be an exception. And I think that makes this discussion important. So I would just say my bottom line is, regardless of whether General Austin gets the waiver, this needs to be a very vibrant discussion because this should be an exceptional circumstance. So if he is given the waiver, the administration, including the president-elect, have to make a very strong case why there's an exception here. And I'm sure this is a debate that's going to continue. Todd, were you about to jump in? Yeah. And, you know, I I would weigh in and say, you know, without trying to put specific odds on it, it's just a a matter of fact that you have to amend the law to allow him to serve. That means that that amendment has to pass in both the House and the Senate and his confirmation has to go through the normal process in the Senate. So there are more steps in the process. He is not just going through the Senate. He is also going through the House. So that in itself makes it a bit more difficult to get through. I would also add that assuming he does get through, given his background and his experience and his expertise, which has been in really the operational side of the military, I expect that Austin, like Mattis, is probably going to focus more uh, on the operational side of DOD and in particular ongoing operations in places like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan. That's where he's most comfortable. That's where he has the most expertise. That means that the kind of stuff that I analyze in my work, the defense budget and what they're doing with acquisition programs, things like that, it's probably going to be more consequential who the deputy secretary pick is for those kind of things. So now, you know, I am looking more closely at who's that deputy pick going to be and how does that person view the, you know, the budgetary and the modernization and programmatic challenges that the department is facing in the coming years. Well, let me ask another question about the national defense strategy during the Trump administration. It realigned to focus on great power competition and specifically on China. The Biden team has signaled that China is one of its top defense priorities. How do you think the Biden approach to China is going to differ and what steps should it take? I think the Biden administration is going to be one with heavy heavy policy making thumb on the scales from the White House. And, you know, they're choosing a weak defense secretary and they're choosing the secretary late in the game in order to send a signal about wanting, you know, foreign policy to lead and defense policy to follow. And so I think their natural inclination will be to try and explore any avenues of cooperation, potential cooperation with China to try and dial down the prospects of military confrontation. The problem with that approach, there are two problems with that approach. The first is that it's China that's driving the level of military confrontation. So they could very easily get back-footed and be seen as soft on China or there being an incident where they uh, don't react quickly or assertively enough and Asian allies begin to get rattled and Congress gets to be assertive. And the choices in the first six months of an administration really do cast long shadows into the remainder of it. So that's one potential problem with the approach. The other problem is that I think it, even though, even if it's responsible governance, it's very much out of step with both where public business and congressional attitudes are on China. 
And so I think you're likely to see Congress force the administration's hand. I noticed terrific Zach Cooper, formerly of CSIS, now of AEI, read through the 4,700-some pages of the NDAA and identified the 43 Asia-specific elements in the legislation. And I think Congress will will continue to legislate on that issue if they're at all skeptical that the administration isn't taking a strong enough stand. Besides China, what are the other major issues or the other major challenges that you foresee them having to tackle right out of the gate? North Korea has been quiet for a little bit, but I can't imagine that will continue for very long. Seth, you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, let me just say one other issue on China, in addition to what Corey mentioned, is I I do think there will be at least an attempt to establish a bit more of a multilateral approach to the Chinese rather than largely one that has been unilateral or bilateral. That may mean attempting the, the if one looks at the new NATO 2030 United for a New Era a document, which came out at the end of November, China has raised Its profile has been raised among NATO and a number of European countries, obviously on the multilateral area in Asia. I think what it potentially means is an effort by a new administration to see if it can work with the South Koreans and the Japanese and the Australians and others in ways to balance against the Chinese. As far as other issues, I mean, certainly... um, in the European theater, and we've already seen this, a, an assertion that NATO is an important alliance. And I think, you know, that's both a military and a political component. You mentioned, Bev, North Korea. Iran, obviously, will be a major foreign policy issue, particularly assuming negotiations start with Iran over some kind of a nuclear deal. The Trump administration is certainly leaving its mark on Iran and in particular also with some what look like joint actions with the Israelis, the killing of Iran's lead nuclear scientist in a covert operation, as well as some other what appear to be Mossad operations against al-Qaeda individuals in and around Tehran. So there's been an uptick in violence uh, directed at Iran. I think the Biden administration will attempt to start to renegotiate an Iran deal. The challenge, of course, will be Republicans on the Hill. And then there are others that are going to ask the question about, okay, let's set aside the nuclear deal for a moment. What about the activity of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Quds Force that continues to operate with Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria that works with the Hashid al-Shabi, the Iraqi militias? in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen, and other kinds of organizations, as well as Iran's own missile program. So how do you deal with other areas that Iran poses a potential threat? Those are those are issues that the administration is going to have to handle. And then obviously the Russians, as you noted earlier, the Russians are pretty active. They went after FireEye recently. They've conducted cyber operations. Their private military companies like Wagner Group are increasingly active in Africa, in Eastern Europe, including in Belarus recently. Uh, GRU is pretty active in a number of areas. So they've, they're going to have their hands full with the, with the Russians and probably a, an eye towards 
doing what the Trump administration did not really do, which is actually treating the Russians as a competitor. Well, as we wrap up here, I have a question for you, Todd, specifically. What should we expect to see in terms of any significant shifts and capabilities and forces that the Biden administration may prioritize as it concerns future operations? And where do we expect to see the resources dedicated? And the second part of that question is that the left is asking the Biden administration to kill the Space Force. I'm wondering if there's any possibility of that happening, since it seems as if you start something, it doesn't ever go away. It stays. Yeah, well, and also keep in mind, the Space Force had bipartisan support in Congress uh, before President Trump ever mentioned it to anyone. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's a group of less informed folks in Congress who are pushing for that. And it's a relatively small minority who are doing that. They also don't recognize that, hey, the Space Force operates things that you use every day, like GPS. So, yeah, I would say one of the big policy issues they're going to have to deal with uh, is actually space policy. And it's a different type of issue because unlike most of the other areas that have been talked about, space policy is something where the Trump administration is leaving them in pretty good position. The you know recreation of the National Space Council, the five space policy directives that have come out of that, the movement to consolidate and reinvigorate space within the military now you know, standing up the Space Force, the smooth transition that's been happening of forces and capabilities and personnel uh, over to the Space Force. All of that is in progress. It is a lot of stuff that, quite honestly, the Biden administration probably would not have taken the initiative to do on their own. But now that it has been done or is in progress, uh, it's going to be up to them to see through the implementation. And so I think, you know, they're going to have a lot of space policy issues that drop in their lap. And the challenge will be to them to be able to keep the momentum going forward, you know, and complete these steps and not walk back on them. And, you know, in terms of repartization in the budget, I actually, you know, in the the first budget request, the fiscal year 22 request, I don't expect we're going to see huge shifts around in there, you know, just because they're not going to have that much time to make changes to it before they need to submit it to Congress. It's the FY23 budget request is where they will be able to build it really from start to finish. That's where we could see them pushing in more changes. You know, it's not entirely clear at this point because this was not a national security election. And, you know, the Biden team during the campaign did not say a lot of specifics about what they would do in national security and defense programs in particular. You know, contrary to some of the speculation out there, I think nuclear modernization programs are safe. I think there'll be some renewed questions about GBSD, but I think they will arrive at the same conclusion the Obama administration did, which is we don't have a lot of good alternatives other than continuing the program of record. And, you know, I think there are a few areas where they can tweak things like, you know, pulling the low yield nukes out of the arsenal again. And, you know, there won't be any sub launch nuclear armed cruise missile. The Trump administration actually never put that in the budget. But, you know, that'll be an opportunity cost savings, uh, not buying that. And then, you know, when you go to each of the military services, I think they're going to have to rationalize and make some of the hard decisions that have really been deferred. Uh, this idea of a 350 ship Navy or 500 plus ships, if you include the, the uncrewed ones, you know, that 
that's not realistic. And, you know, if you're building towards an unrealistic goal, you're, you know, doomed to failure. And so I think that's something they're going to have to rein in on the 30 year shipbuilding plan and kind of make that more rational and within realistic budget constraints. The same is true for the Air Force. I think they're going to have to go through and look at the Air Force's inventory of aircraft and their modernization plans. They're going to have to rationalize that. The Air Force is not going to get to 386 squadrons, but, you know, there may be some room for pockets of growth. Now, you know, when it comes to the Army, the Army is likely to be the biggest bill payer. I think, you know, General Milley already said that publicly. Um, but the question is, you know, when they do that, how are they going to make smart, you know, strategically informed reductions in the army? And so that's something, you know, it's not clear what specific decisions they're going to make yet. But once the, you know, senior leadership team starts to become uh, more, you know, defined and better in play, then I think we can start to surmise what the views of those individuals are. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Todd, Corey, Seth, thank you so very much. Have a wonderful holiday season. And thank you all so much for being here. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.